It is Monday, July 17th, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Today, the start of a new transitional housing program in Bentonville for veterans. I think one of the other things that we're seeing more recently is a lot of our service members were expecting tax returns or our veterans were expecting tax returns that were not as much this year as they've received in the past. Plus, the launch of Oaklawn's Heyday. That is Tammy Jett taking over the lead with Master Court on the outside in a drive. Those two are coming together. Prior Center archives help tell the story and an iconic rock and roll riff with Arkansas origins. Louis Jordan's uh, guitarist Carl Hogan was the inspiration for most of my solos. We begin with the news from NPR. KUAF is supported by Format Festival, merging music, art, and technology September 22nd through the 24th in Bentonville. This three-day festival features art installations and experiences from artists including Little Sims, Big Wild, The Far Side, plus a music lineup of over 50 artists. For tickets and information, format-festival.com. This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, July 17th, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Later this hour, an encore visit with Randy Dixon from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. We'll listen again as he shares the history of Oak Lawn Park. First, Operation Homefront, a national organization that provides support services to military veterans and their families, is launching a new transitional housing program for veterans in Bentonville. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth spoke with Gracie Brohl, Vice President of the Housing Program, about who is eligible and about some of the challenges the housing market poses to veterans. All right. So first off, Gracie, can you just sort of tell me a little bit uh, about Operation Homefront in general and then maybe break down um, the Transitional Homes for Veterans program that you're uh, heading up or in charge of? Sure. Um, Operation Homefront is a national nonprofit organization with a mission to build strong, stable, and secure military families so they can thrive, not simply struggle to get by in the communities they have worked so hard to protect. With our Transitional Homes for Veterans program, right now we have two homes open for applications in Bentonville, and we're excited about that. Um, any veteran who has served honorably and within one to three years of discharge would be considered eligible for this program. When they're in the program, what we do is we work with each family individually to help them improve credit scores, pay off debt, and accumulate savings. So when they're participating in the program, we, we work on what we consider our five pillars, which would be community integration, educational pathways, employment opportunities, financial counseling, and physical and psychological well-being. And so could you kind of break down, you know, looking at those five, five pillars, you know, what those are and how you sort of go about uh, making that process work? Sure. In each of our five pillars, we work on the community integration, which would be if they go out and volunteer, get involved in their churches, the local food bank, anything like that. We just want to make sure that they're getting out in the community and learning more about the civilian world. We work with them on education by holding different events at each of our, in both all of our areas. Mm-hmm. With the employment opportunities, we partner with Higher Heroes USA 
and each service member and their spouses will work with the employment counselors to figure out what they, it might be what they want to do. Um, it'll help them write resumes, plan for interviews, just kind of give them that opportunity to find employment if they are able to work. Some are veterans are not able to work. So again, we have to work with each family individually. With the financial counseling, we have financial counselors that will work with each family individually because every family need is a little bit different. We partner with ClearPoint for that. And it is a one-on-one session. They work with the financial counselors to improve credit scores, to reduce debt, and to accumulate savings. And so when it comes to housing, I know that it's, you know, it's kind of a huge issue all over the country. But I'm wondering, you know, specifically for veterans, what makes them particularly vulnerable? And what are kind of the big hurdles when it comes to finding um, housing opportunities? A lot of our service members are really struggling right now from even COVID. A lot of our service members that are in the program, unfortunately, they lost jobs or hours were cut. And so they're trying to recover from that time. I think one of the other things that we're seeing more recently is a lot of our service members were expecting tax returns or our veterans were expecting tax returns that were not as much this year as they've received in the past. And when you're looking at places to kind of to start these sorts of programs and these projects, what made Bentonville and Northwest Arkansas specifically kind of attractive for you guys? Why why work here uh, with veterans in this area? We have a lot of opportunities in Bentonville. We know it's a growing community. It's a nice community. Lots of major employers that are heading out that way. And we just really thought with the employers that are out there that they probably have great veter- great veterans that could be successful in our program. So we thought it would be a nice area. When, okay. Can you walk through a little bit of this program? So what are the what is the transitional housing? What does that look like? Uh, and then kind of what's the timeline for this program? How long are people in it? And then what are the next steps maybe? Yeah, those that we serve in the transitional housing program, they will be in it from a period of two to three years. With us not knowing what the housing market is going to be, we want to make sure that our families are successful. And so that's why we work with them until they're ready to purchase a home of their own. So when we are trying to find a home, we look at several things. Of course, we look at crime rates. We look at the schools in the area. We want to make sure that the kids are able to go to a nice school. And then we also want to look where a veteran has opportunities, Um, a VA hospital close by or even a little vet center close by is good. Um, And then the major thing is because we want our veterans to stay in those communities, we want to make sure that they have a connection to the community. And I think that's always important because the whole point is to have our veterans more settled. And when we're selecting homes for the program, We also look for homes that are in a price range that a veteran family can afford once they're out of the program so they can afford to buy a home on their own in that community. And can you break down just kind of the so financials for, I guess, a standard veteran, if there is one after uh, military service, you know, what those benefits would look like and where the average veteran is once they're out of military service, like how easy is it for them to be able to afford a home and and what is kind of the price range, I guess? With the veterans, some of the challenges that we see are a lot of times our veterans are waiting a while before they get their VA benefits. Mm -hmm. It has gotten better over the years. I know in the past we were seeing veterans 
our, I think our average was anywhere between eight and 18 months before mm-hmm. that first compensation check would come in. Right now we're seeing them get them within one to three months. But if you have a family of five and you don't get paid for a month, yeah. that can be pretty devastating to your family. So that is a little bit of the challenges that our veterans are still having. Another thing is the VA is doing a much better job at working with veterans, getting caught up on those back pays. But what we're seeing still is they will, they are paying the veteran, which is a great thing, but they're not necessarily getting the pay for all of their dependents. So it is still a constant struggle for our veterans. I was going to say another thing that we um, struggle with is a lot of times you can get approved for a home loan. That's easy. A lot of people can do that. But what happens is sometimes you get approved for a home loan, but if one little thing happens, it can be pretty devastating to your family and you just keep spiraling out of control. So what we tell our veterans when we're working with them is, yes, you can get approved for that loan, but let's look at the reality of that loan Mm -hmm. over the long term. So we think it's really important that our veteran families understand that so that they can purchase a home that they can stay in for life, actually. Yeah. And so when you're talking with veterans or working with the families, what are some maybe misconceptions or things that they don't understand about the, the home owning or buying process that, um, that they don't even know about? That they're, What are some of the questions that I guess you get? I think a lot of times our veterans have lived in military housing, so mm-hmm. they aren't aware of what you go through when it's time to purchase a home. So a lot of times the questions can be very basic. What can we afford? What is the interest rate on homes right now? Um, And also financing. A lot of our veterans don't understand how to go about getting finance or how to go through that process, I guess, of being approved for a loan and then working through the closing on the home. All right. And so is there are there any things for veterans who are looking at this program? Uh, what do they need to know? What are some things that they need to have uh, in, in order to take part in this process? Whenever we look for veterans um, for this program, veterans who are who have served honorably and are within one to three years of discharge, they're eligible for this program. One of the things that we do is we make sure that they're, they have the ability to maintain the home while they're in it and the ability to purchase a home after they've spent time in our program. So they need to have that desire of home ownership and then a plan to move forward. Yeah. And then for this project, uh, I know you have the two uh, spots available right now. Will there be more coming up in the future in this region in Arkansas? We are definitely hoping to expand our our home program in the Bentonville, Arkansas area. And we are actually, right now, we're looking at property to actually, to put an office in Bentonville. Thanks so much for taking the time uh, to talk with me. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. That was Gracie Broll, Vice President of Transitional and Permanent Housing for Operation Homefront. She spoke with Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth last week. For more information on the program, you can visit operationhomefront.org. 
a new creative arts therapy program being offered free of charge to military veterans and spouses of veterans will begin early next month at Inspiration Point near Eureka Springs. The three-day Veterans Creative Arts Retreat will take place Friday, August 4th through Sunday, August 6th. It is offered free of charge. The three-day retreat will allow participants to sample drama therapy, music therapy, and visual art therapy through guided activities led by registered creative arts therapists. Sponsored in part by the Arkansas Arts Council and Arvest Bank, all program components, including meals and lodging, will be provided at no cost to participants. Registration is available by calling 479-253-8595. Capacity is limited, so early registration by July 28th is recommended. Still to come on today's show, this familiar guitar riff. And it's little-known Arkansas Connection. Stephen Cook and this week's Arkansas later on today's Ozarks at Large. We have to continue to carve out a space for Blacks and African Americans to really feel fully invested in our community here in Northwest Arkansas. Mm. On the latest episode of The Beloved Community, a podcast with the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Council and KUAF, Hosts and council members Chris Seawood and Lindsay Leverett Higgins discuss the council's efforts to develop strategies aimed at improving black life in Northwest Arkansas through a new electronic census project. What is it that we're missing in Northwest Arkansas that is a vast need, a desire for people in our community? Mm. We want to make sure that we're connecting with the community so that the data really has an opportunity to speak and to tell the story. Listen to the beloved community for free at KUAF.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. New data released this morning at the Alzheimer's Association International Conference shows the average Arkansas County has an 11.3% rate of residents with Alzheimer's or dementia. Counties in northwest Arkansas have lower rates than that state average. The counties with the highest levels of prevalence are Lee and Chico in southeast Arkansas with rates of 161 and 15.8% respectively. This morning's numbers represent the first time such statistics have been available on a county-by-county level rather than just a state-by-state level. Sebastian, Washington, and Benton counties all had a lower prevalence of Alzheimer's and dementia than the state average. The Arkansas chapter of the ACLU is joining an effort challenging a social media law passed by the Arkansas legislature. Act 689, scheduled to go into effect in September, will require age verification before using social media accounts or opening new accounts. It also requires any users who are minors to obtain explicit parental consent for social media usage. The ACLU filed a proposed amicus brief to an existing court challenge to the law. Holly Dixon, the executive director of ACLU of Arkansas, says the new law is an affront to freedom of expression and right to privacy. Authors of the bill say the new rule will protect minors from possible dangers connected to online accounts. The National Weather Service confirms a tornado struck the town of Mansfield early Friday morning. The EF-1 tornado was part of a storm system that moved quickly through the region on Friday. No serious injuries have been reported 
in connection with the tornado, though there was property damage. And Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders is declaring five central and western Arkansas counties, including Pope County, as disaster areas following severe storms that developed late last month. The storms on June 25th included strong straight-line winds that damaged private and public buildings. Talk Business and Politics reports a land deal for the first Costco store in northwest Arkansas is off. A Little Rock developer representing the retailer says plans have changed and the deal for the site in Lowell will not move forward. Costco has one location in Arkansas, in Little Rock. The Washington-based chain has opened stores in Tulsa and Springfield, Missouri. Today is the first day income-eligible Cherokee families can apply for a one-time payment of $150 through the Cherokee Nation's Children's Clothing Assistance Program. This year, for the first time, The Children's Clothing Assistance Program combines the tribe's annual back-to-school payment and the annual fall-winter coat assistance payment into one program and a single application. The program is open to eligible Cherokee children living anywhere in the United States. Applications can be made through the Gadoogee portal at Cherokee.org. Application deadline is 5 p.m. August 11th. The Northwest Arkansas Naturals will be back in Arvest Ballpark in Springdale tomorrow night. The Nats will open up a six-game series against Tulsa with first pitch set for 7.05 tomorrow evening. And they're off for the lead. In the Anthony and Susan Hoy News studio with me on this Monday is Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Welcome back, Randy. Thank you, Kyle. That opening cut, there's something called the milepost effect that I think roughly means if you smell something or hear something, it instantly takes you somewhere. Yes. Now, I don't go to Oaklawn more than once a year, and I don't go every year, but that instantly put me at Oh, Oaklawn. you know it. Yes. You... you, you... I mean, I can still, you know. I know the feeling when I first walk in those it gates. Smells. Yes, and it's, I. It's great. And it's, I don't put down more than a two dollar bet almost ever. Well, when I go, I'm not going to gamble. Right. I'm going for an event to right. have a great time. Right. And. And I always do. Yes. So we're talking about Oaklawn today. And they're off. And they're off. Yes. Oaklawn has been around for a while. Since 1905. Though not continuously operating. Right. There were some times that, uh, you know, during Prohibition Wars, things like that, that it would close temporarily. But it's been a mainstay in Hot Springs. And when it first opened, it wasn't the only one. Mm. There were several others around the state and even a couple in the Hot Springs area. But the Sella brothers. Yeah. Uh, Charles and Lewis opened it, and the first thing they did, get this, is they hired a guy named Zachary Taylor Davis, who was a well-known architect in Chicago, Mm -hmm. and he came and designed that grandstand that you still see, glassed in and heated, which had never been done before in the country. So it was a big deal. And... To get an idea of how big this architect was, 10 years later, he designed Wrigley Field. Oh, my. Same guy. Huh. How about that? I did not know that. Yeah. So, um, you know, the the Sella family still owns the track. So it's been in the family for generations. Right. Um, for a long time, the, the president and owner was Charles Sella. Um, his son, Louis, now is president. Um, 
but Charles in the, I think he took over in 68 and, um, after the death of his father and, um, well, I found an interview with him, uh, in the KTV archives. This dates back to 1974. He was interviewed by then KTV sports director, Bud Campbell, mm. and he's talking about improvements and expansions. This will increase the capacity here by what? Well, if you recall, last Derby Day, we set an attendance record of uh, 28,000. Uh, the capacity will be increased by a third, so we feel that we can handle adequately uh, 35,000 people. So that was 49 years ago. Well, and he, you know, was talking about this record right. attendance of 28,000, and they're hoping to get 35,000. Well, just to kind of put it in perspective, um, they set an attendance record in 1986 of more than 71,000. So it's more than doubled. Right. Oh, yes. Uh, just since the 70s. First, let's talk about the track announcers, and they're off. Yes. Uh, there have been a, a couple of really big ones over the years. The first one, who I don't remember, but was probably the most famous, was uh, a man by the name of Chick Anderson. I've heard the name. Yeah, you've always heard the name. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was not only voice at Oaklawn, but he was also at Churchill Downs, Santa Anita, Arlington Park, and he was also on CBS Sports. So he was a well-known person in the 60s and early 70s. But, um, well, let's hear him make a stretch call here. They're coming for the head of the stretch. Bulldor is the leader and master courtesan to drive Tammy Jet between horses. They're in the stretch. That is Tammy Jett taking over the lead with Master Court on the outside in a drive. Those two are coming together. Master Court taking over the lead as they move through the stretch. Still Tammy Jett holding in second. Driving into third is Boulder Analyst. Coming for the way, it's Master Court. At the finish, it's going to be Master Court, the winner by three and a half. Tammy Jett second. What's great of, about Chick Anderson's voice, it's, it's very kind of low-key. Mm -hmm. And monotone, mm -hmm. which was, I mean, that was him excited right. during the yes. stretch run. Right. Now, the guy I know. Uh, yeah, that, that most of our keys know. Oh, because he was there forever. for more than 30 years, right. uh, Terry Wallace. And he was up. He was, he was up, excited. And, um, well, here's a call that he made um, in 1984. One thing about Terry Wallace, he could work. He, all right, here's, here's a little stat. He never missed a race. He had a record of 20,191 consecutive races he called. Because you think about it, you're, you're calling 9, 10, 11 races every day. Right, for 37 years. And how do you keep all those horses straight? You've only got 45 minutes or 50 minutes in between races to get yourself familiar with the horses and their silks. Right, it's quite a job. Yeah, it is. Here's the great voice of Terry Wallace at the stretch. Althea opens her lead to four lengths. On the outside, it is Gate Dancer moving to second. Darn that alarm is third, leaves them double his fourth. But the Philly Althea leads it by five lengths. Gate Dancer is second at the threshold third. With a furlong to go, it's Althea stepping away from this field of Colts in the Arkansas Derby. Althea's going to win it. 
That was 1984 with Terry Wallace, and 84, just the 80s in general, but especially 1984 was a big year for Oakland. Sports reporter from KTV, Bob Harris, did a report sort of previewing the season. To accommodate the always large crowds at Oakland, track officials thought it would be best to enlarge the seating capacity. This season's newly completed grandstand section will account for a 10% increase in the number of enclosed arena seats. Another change at the track will be the wagering system. It's all computerized, designed to cut down on long lines and quickly compute winnings. Essentially, every machine within the plant can sell tickets of any denomination from $2 to 250 then turn around and cash any of those tickets. Betters will go through three simple steps at the window. First, state the amount of wager. Second, state the type of wager, to win, place, or show. And thirdly, state the number of the horse. There will be a communication problem for both the tellers and the customers. Uh, I feel that better than 50% have never seen this type of system uh, since we have such a great turnover of public coming to the racetrack. And it will be new to them. We will have brochures, uh, literature within the program to explain how to bet. The major change at Oakland this year, the change that's drawing most of the attention, is the purse for the Arkansas Derby. It's been raised from $250 to $500,000. With excellent track conditions and a fine line of thoroughbreds coming in, many experts are predicting records to be set. That, they feel, will make the racing festival of the South worth its while. From Oakland, this is Bob Harris for New Scene 7 Sports. Obviously, by the mid-'80s, it is a mainstay of the hot springs economy and the Arkansas culture. Sure. Sure, but then competition creeps in. Uh, all the adjoining states. Blue Ribbon Downs in Salisaw opens up. Louisiana Downs right. and Baton Rouge. Um, but then you get gambling. Uh, I'll let a guy who would know um, tell the story. This is uh, General Manager Eric Jackson. The 1980s were, were great, and we thought they would never end. And then a whole bunch of states got racing, and we nearly went out of business, so we came up with something that nobody knew what it was at the time called simulcasting. But uh -huh. we started that here, and now it's the biggest product in American racing. And that worked until Mississippi got casinos, and then Louisiana, Missouri, and Oklahoma. And suddenly we were surrounded by more casinos in adjacent states than any state in the country. And we had to come up with something. We came up with instant racing and formed a subsidiary. Put that on the floor in 2000, and it worked. Uh, we were able to take the revenues from that and uh, put them into purses, and the racing got better. And suddenly it became what I call a, a virtuous upward cycle where racing and gaming work together uh, for the betterment of the sport. And we've never looked back. Horse racing is not as popular now as it was 75 years ago. You know, right. there was a time when it was one of still the sport of kings. Right. Yeah. But the most there was a, exciting two minutes on earth. Right. But there was a time when it was part of the public consciousness, and let's be honest, it isn't so much now. So you had to come up with ways to engage people differently. Right. And boy, have they? Yeah, they. Have. Um, you know, that was the year 2000. The track officials went to the state legislature, wanted to talk to them about upping, um, you know, taking another step towards gambling at the park, because gambling was still um, illegal. Right. But 
This I've always thought was brilliant. And I, I credit Eric Jackson with doing this because it was under his, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was under his management. But they came up with a thing called skill-based gaming. Not gambling. No, no, because you had to uh, have some sort of skill. You mm-hmm. were picking races. Mm-hmm. You were picking horses. But it was electronic. It was like a slot machine. But really, it was a veiled form of gambling. Here's, here's Eric Jackson again. And the legislature voted, well, you can now have other electronic games of skill, but there has to be an element of skill. So suddenly we could expand our menu beyond just instant racing. And that's that's the time we said, you know, we've got to start looking like a, a casino. So it was really kind of gambling, wasn't it? Oh, it was. No, it was it was real gambling. I mean, it was video poker and things like that. But it was it was the next step. I call the the baby steps of gaming. Uh, we started out with instant racing, and then we got uh, electronic games of skill. Then the state got a state lottery, and then uh-huh. ultimately we were allowed to have a full casino. Now we're just talking now about announcers and management, mm-hmm. and um, you know. We aren't even talking about jockeys and trainers and owners right now. I think we could do an entire oh sure we could program on that if you want to. Yeah, we can do that in a few weeks. Yeah, but now let's talk about the handicappers and sports writers. You know, I remember tip sheets. You know, you're walking across the street. Oh yeah, to go in, and there's always people standing on the corner. And I remember like Stable Boy and uh, Silent Sam. A disc jockey in Little Rock, Ray Lincoln, who used to come on the radio every morning, and um, he had a character he would do (laughs) that um, he had a tip sheet. Mm -hmm. Even Gary Weir, who was Bozo the Clown, when he retired from the big top, he started handicapping races. He was really good. The sports writers had daily columns during the season, and they would also make picks. So you had all this information that that you could, you know, use for your wagers. Right. But one guy who's now with NBC Sports is Randy Moss, who I've known for years and years. Mm -hmm. Um, But we never met in person that many times. And the reason is he used to be on Live at Five every day during racing season at five o'clock we would go live to oaklawn and he'd be up in the press box and he would have his picks and analyze the day of racing and i was the producer so i would always talk in his ear he's now with nbc sports and uh, he grew up in arkansas in hot springs specifically he's been going to the track since well actually he was too young to go to the track he Mm -hmm. would go but I talked to him the other day, and this is what he had to say about his early history with Oaklawn. Snuck into Oaklawn in various different methods uh, when I was a kid, when the legal age was 16 years old, and I was much younger than that. And, uh, you know, eventually uh, that sort of morphed into a job with the Arkansas Gazette under Orville Henry and then the Arkansas Democrat. And so Oaklawn Park has been a... Uh, very important part of my life. I guess you could call him a, a handicapping prodigy. Yes. But 
he started handicapping races, I mean, for real. Professionally. When he was in junior high. Wow. Now, he didn't make much. Um, he started working for a man named Don Grisham, who was with the Sporting News. And he also and had the Sporting a, News, in case you've forgotten, was this weekly newsprint publication. Yes. Yes. Um, National. But, but he also had a column in the Arkansas Gazette. And so he hired this ninth grader, Randy Moss, to type up, you know, four computers or anything mm-hmm. else. And he would type up all of his entries and picks and then take it to give it to the newspaper. And he paid him $20 a week to do that. Mm-hmm. Good money. Let's listen to Randy Moss about what he did. Don wasn't the greatest handicapper in the world. And I would come across races in which I was absolutely convinced in my ninth grade wisdom that he was wrong. And so I dropped off the entries one day and uh, told them that uh, I think you made a mistake here. So I I changed your pick in this particular race. I think that this horse is going to win. The horse won. And that emboldened. Is he okay with that? Well, when the horse won, he was okay with that. I, I I think he found it humorous to begin with. Uh, but when the horse won, it sort of emboldened me a little bit, and I started doing it more and more often, and I had a, a pretty lucky and impressive strike rate. And so uh, at the end of that ninth grade meeting, when we when we Oakland started again, and I was in the tenth grade, Don told me, let's flip this. Why don't you do all the picking? And if I want to change something, since my name is on the column, then I have uh, – then I have the right. Beginning in wow. the 10th grade, I began doing the column myself full time. And but under time, another name. Under another name. But after a few years, he made a name for himself. And, you know, like I said, he did the Live at Five reports. And he started doing those, I guess you'd say, before he was even old enough to drink. So he was not yet 21. He was 19 or 20. Wow. So, yeah, he and I are the same age. Mm-hmm. Here's this kid in the control room at the TV station talking to this kid up in the press mm-hmm. box. He was a great handicapper and, of course, moved on and moved up, and now he's with NBC Sports. I guess if we're telling just little stories about Oakland, another good story is the story of Smarty Jones. Remember that name? Oh, my goodness. There were Smarty parties. People who were big fans of this horse would gather and have a Smarty Party. I still have some of the Smarty Jones trading cards mm. that they were that they were passing out, and that was in 2004. He took Oaklawn and really the entire nation by storm. Of horse oh, he yeah. did. Um, he was he was all the talk. Oaklawn had offered in celebration of their centennial year, and I think they started it the year before. But they would give, they offered a $5 million bonus to any horse that could win the Rebel Stakes and the Kentucky Derby, or the Rebel Stakes and the Arkansas Derby at Oakland, and then go and win the Kentucky Derby. Well, let's just hear Smarty Jones in the stretch run of the Arkansas Derby. Smarty Jones leads it by three and a half and is pulling away. They're driving toward the wire. It is Smarty Jones by three. Perigo trying to make one late move. Pro Prado at the rail. Smarty Jones leading by two. It is Smarty Jones. One step more to Kentucky and one giant step to $5 million. And now I remember that during the Kentucky Derby, Belmont and the Preakness, Oaklawn 
as Eric had mentioned, was doing simulcasting. Mm -hmm. They had, you mentioned the Smarty Parties. Mm -hmm. They had huge Smarty Parties at Oaklawn. And you could watch the race. You could bet at their windows, their cages. It was just a lot of fun. It was a big party. My, my brother and I went to one of them. Anyway, this one for the Kentucky Derby, um, Smarty Jones was, wasn't originally the favorite. Now, right. by race time, he was, but he was going off at 4-1, to one, which is really good odds for a favorite. Mm-hmm. So that's a really good pay. And Smarty Jones won. <laughs> and it caused a little bit of a problem <laughs> for Oakland, which I've never heard this story I before. Have, yeah. But you have heard it? I had heard about it. Yeah. But never from someone who actually knew what it was. Who was sweating bullets right. because of it. Here's Eric Jackson. What was remarkable about the Kentucky Derby is we ran out of money. Because everybody at Oakland bet on Smarty, and of course he won the Kentucky Derby and paid, I don't know, 8 or $9. We didn't have enough money to pay everybody off. Oh, now, no. We're ultimately mingled in with all the other bets in America, but it takes 24 to 48 hours to shift all that money around so that losing money gets shifted so you can pay off winning money. But all the winners were at Oakland. <laughs> <laughs> so we ran out of money. I don't think that's ever happened at a racetrack before. Everybody was understanding. Come back tomorrow or, you know, we'll mail it to you, anything you want us to do. But we're out of money. So there yeah. wasn't a run on the cages, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was, it was late in the day on a Saturday. You know, we couldn't even run down to the bank. So yeah. one of the oddities in American racing is Smarty was so popular in Arkansas that Oakland ran out of money. Uh, so things continued to develop, and fairly quickly, when you look at the, you know, the history, the long history of Oakland. So in 2009, voters approved the lottery, uh, which helped because every other state around us had the lottery. Then in 2018, you know, gambling was made legal. Right. So Oakland is now in the unique position of having both a racetrack and a casino. So let's hear Eric Jackson one more time. We came up with the term racino. It's it's not a racetrack and it's not a casino. It's something in between. But we think we have found a way, or at least we know we have so far, we found a way that racing and gaming can each benefit the other. And right now on the racing side, of course, we're racing today, our purses are the highest in America. And this is at a track that was nearly out of business in the late 1990s. In fact, a lot of people had given us up for dead. And here we are now with the highest purses in America and, and what we think is some of the very best racing in America. And it's all here in Arkansas and Hot Springs. We'll do something again next week. Yeah. I bet on it. It'll be fun. Ah, <laughs> <laughs>
This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Matthew. Yes. It's Monday. It is. We've got a whole week ahead of us. Uh-huh. What if we list a week's worth of interesting things to do with no admission charge? Well, it's free to listen to Ozarks at Large. It is indeed. And it's, uh, yes, but we're only on, you know, a couple times a day. That's true. So... You can fill out your calendar this way. And I am not in any way suggesting that you shouldn't pay for bands and arts and food. I'm just saying here are some opportunities. Oh, the the activities are free. Yes. Got it. Yes. The Botanical Garden of the Ozarks keeps the terrific Tuesdays coming tomorrow. Tomorrow night's theme is quintessentially summer, Sprinkler Fest. Mm. Sprinklers will be set up on the Great Lawn for kids, well, really anybody, to, to run through. Other things to do tomorrow night include chalk activity, hula hoops, and cornhole. It's free. Registration is requested, though, at bgozarks.org. The event, tomorrow night from 5 until 8.30. And by the way, it's a people-only event. Leave the pets at home. Yep. Wednesday night, the Chamber Music on the Mountain Summer Festival and the Fayetteville Public Library are teaming up for a free concert in the library's event center. The performance, titled Folk Traditions and Chamber Music, starts at 6 o'clock Wednesday night. Again, this year, the Chamber Music on the Mountain Summer Festival has a mix of free and ticketed concerts, many taking place at Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville. Later this week, we'll hear from some of the musicians who have come here to perform. Every third Thursday of the month, the Fort Smith Jazz Jam takes place at the Bakery District in downtown Fort Smith. You can show up, listen for free. This month's session is this Thursday. It's from 6 until 9. Mr. Troy is back at the Ramble along the Razorback Greenway in Fayetteville Friday morning. He's playing music, playing games from 9 to 10.30, weather permitting. He promises your youngest family members will not just sing along, but move along as well. Maybe we'll try to get him back in. He was When he had his uh, book yeah. out last year, oh, yeah. I had him in the studio. Yeah, and as a, a brand new father myself, there you go. what an opportunity for, uh, go. for my little guy to meet uh, Mr. Troy. And of course... Like you said, the ramble, anything that happens there is weather permitting. Yes. Uh, Friday night in Eureka, Arkansas Music Works Brass Band will perform a free concert taking place in the Odd. They are an entirely volunteer brass band. They're based in northwest Arkansas. Friday night, they may play opera, they may play jazz, Broadway, modern compositions. One thing we know, everything they play, written especially for British-style brass band. Music will begin Friday night at 7 in the Odd. Also on Friday night, you can take your lawn chair and listen to MK Ultra in the Butterfield in the Butterfield stage at the rail yard for free in downtown Rogers. You can also spend some money and reserve a table up close. Music starts Friday night at 8 o'clock. Then Saturday night, same place, music from Ted Hammig and the campaign. All right, and then later this month, three Arkansas-born storytellers of note will appear together at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. The museum announced last week Oscar-winning actor Mary Steenburgen, Emmy-winning playwright Quee Gwynn, and Peabody-winning filmmaker Craig Renault will participate in the Southern Storyteller Session. This is July 30th at 5. The event is a co-presentation of the museum and Arkansas PBS It's free. Tickets are required, though, and can be reserved at the museum's website, or you can call... 657-2335. And, you know, what's always free is just taking some time to be outside if you can stand the heat. (laughs) Saturday afternoon, as temperatures poked into the lower 90s, Gully Park was pretty calm, but still a great place to stop and soak in a few moments of summer bliss along the Niacasa Creek in the middle of the park.
summer Saturday afternoon at Gully Park, and this is Ozarks at Large. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansongs. The Chuck Berry signature guitar intro is, simply put, five seconds that exemplify the creation of the genre of rock and roll. Deeply familiar, yet still full of the promise of excitement, this musical figure is so associated with Barry, it's known as the Chuck Berry Riff. But as credited by Chuck Berry himself, the Riff's origins actually lie with Brinkley, Arkansas native Louis Jordan and his Timpany Five, especially the band's electric guitarist Carl Hogan and their 1946 number one song, Just Like a Woman. Barry described the first time he heard the riff that would be named after him was in one of Carl Hogan's riffs in Louis Jordan's band. Louis Jordan's uh, guitarist, Carl Hogan, was the inspiration for most of my solos. Carol, Johnny B. Good, Roll Over Beethoven, Is he the first guy that you that played that? That played something like that. Yeah, that played something like that. Chuck Berry described rhythm and blues pioneer Louis Jordan as an idol. It was Tiffany Five guitarist Carl Hogan who seemed to really capture Berry's imagination. Carl Hogan was born in 1918 and reported to live in Conway in Faulkner County for a period. But, like Berry, Carl Hogan is associated with St. Louis, Missouri. Hogan was the first electric guitarist in Louis Jordan's Tiffany Five long before the instrument became ubiquitous in popular American music. Hogan played with the band for five innovative years, beginning in the mid-1940s. Chuck Berry made the riff his own, he ran with it. The guitar figure can be heard with variations or in different keys in many of its songs, beginning with his first recordings in 1955. He had something like this in the center of a solo, and I opened my song with it. And uh, Robert Beethoven, after it hit, Later on, Johnny B. Good hit. Later on, Carol hit with the same solo. Little difference in the figure, oh, yeah. you know, but then uh, same principle. The instantly recognizable riff has become ubiquitous in pop culture. After Chuck Berry laid claim to it in so many of its classic songs, many artists have gone on to record them. The Beatles have recorded five Chuck Berry songs, the Rolling Stones more than a dozen. The Beach Boys liked the guitar bit enough to use it for some of their own tales of teen adventures. Chuck Berry successfully sued the Beach Boys over authorship of the band's 1963 song, Surfin' USA.
Recorded in 1958, Chuck Berry's number two hit, Johnny Be Good, is probably the best known of the Berry songs featuring this famous intro, and the one that adheres most closely to its Louis Jordan Ain't That Just Like a Woman antecedent. The Grammy Hall of Fame song was named the number one greatest guitar song of all time by Rolling Stone magazine. Recorded by hundreds of popular artists, a delightfully diverse group of artists have had later chart hits with the song, including Judas Priest, Buck Owens, Jimi Hendrix, and Peter Tosh. Barry's version was one of four songs included on the Voyager space probe launched during the Carter administration, bringing this riff to interstellar space. Chuck Berry and so many others following him did a lot more with the Ain't That Just Like a Woman guitar figure than Louis Jordan. Still, Louis Jordan's number one hit song has been covered by Gatemouth Brown, B.B. King, and Fats Domino, and such Arkansas artists as Ronnie Hawkins. The song with the riff was eventually even recorded by the man with the riff, Chuck Berry himself, bringing Ain't That Just Like a Woman's story full circle. Here in its entirety is Chuck Berry performing Louis Jordan's 1946 number one hit that started it all for Chuck Berry with the Chuck Berry riff, Ain't That Just Like a Woman. From 1965, Chuck Berry performing his version of the 1946 number one hit that revealed the Chuck Berry riff to him, Ain't That Just Like a Woman, by R&B pioneer Louis Jordan of Brinkley. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansongs. Arkansongs is underwritten by Arkansas Heritage. Relive your favorite Barton Coliseum concert memories at the Old State House Museum in downtown Little Rock, where they still play it loud. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, we explore the benefits of forest therapy. It is a mindfulness practice. 
that really allows people to connect with themselves and to connect with nature on a deeper level. Ozarks at Large, tomorrow at noon and at 7 p.m. on KUAF 91.3. On the next episode of The R Word, hosts Lowell and Dustin speak with Dr. Soong Cheng Ra, an author, pastor, professor, and advocate for racial justice in the Christian church. There is something called internalization, where the system is so powerful and the individual uh, internalizes what the system teaches. And this is what I talk about with narratives and imagination. Narratives, stories, uh, worldview, uh, ethics, ethos, culture, all of these things that become a part of the individual that they internalize from social narrative and societal pressure. You can listen to The R Word, a podcast that explores reparations role in racial, social, and economic justice in the Christian church. For free at KUAF.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. Contributors to our program today included Daniel Carruth, Randy Dixon, and Stephen Cook. Matthew put the show together inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio. Our general manager at KUAF is Lee Wood. Kyle, it's been a minute since we've put the show together here. I think it's been since uh, late April. Yeah. Because I was first exposed to COVID, Mm -hmm. and we were in different—I was coming in early. Then I contracted COVID, and about the time I was getting better— Yeah. You and Emily had James. Yeah, yeah. Had my son. May 9th was on uh, eight weeks of parental leave. Uh, really great to get to spend some good quality time up front with him. And uh, happy to be back here on the show, back at KUAF, and uh, happy to get to go home at lunchtime and, and see him as well. We're all happy and healthy now. Absolutely. That's good. That's Absolutely. Good. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Chester. We are a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. We will be back tomorrow, noon and 7, another brand-new edition of our program. Hey, what if you're away from a radio and you want to hear Ozarks at Large? You can uh, follow the podcast. We are in everywhere that you listen to podcasts. Just look up Ozarks at Large, and you can get the daily show there every day that we put out a show. Or ask your smart speaker to please play. Ozarks at Large. KUAF is partnering with local McDonald's owner-operators to bring you the KUAF Lunch Hour Summer Concert Series, including three tiny desk-styled concerts that will take place at different McDonald's locations across northwest Arkansas, the River Valley, and the Green Country. These three concerts lead up to the Lunch All Day Mini Festival in September. Performances include Steph Simon of Fire in Little Africa, country singer Joe West, and artist-designer Tylo May. KUAF.com for more details. KUAF is giving away VIP tickets to the 2023 Rocklahoma Music Festival held September 1st through the 3rd, 2023 in Pryor, Oklahoma. Bands include Buck Cherry, P.O.D., Skid Row, and more. Winners will be announced on Friday, August 25th during Ozarks at Large. KUAF.com for complete lineup and registration.